Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our mission at Grace Bible Fellowship is to magnify the glory of the triune God in Christ Jesus by proclaiming God's word to advance the gospel in our lives and the world. We base who we are and what we do on the good news of Jesus. If you would like to find more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, you can visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. I'm so thankful you've come here to listen to God's Word proclaimed as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I invite you to take your copies of the scripture with me this morning and turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 15. In a moment, we will read verses 22 through 27. Exodus 15. What an encouragement to hear your voices raised to our God this morning. I pray that your hearts were encouraged as we had the opportunity to sing together and to be strengthened in our faith together as we sing these truths. We desire to do everything that we do this morning to be centered around God's Word. So we heard it in our call to worship. I pray that we sang God's Word, we prayed God's Word, we read God's Word, and now what a privilege it is to hear God's Word preached. So would you take your Bibles with me this morning, stand as we Read God's Word together out of reverence and respect for God's Word. I'll read Exodus 15, verses 22 through 27. Follow along while I read. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in His eyes and give ear to His commandments and keep all His statutes, I will put none of His diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs of water and seventy palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O gracious God, we pursue you through your word. And yet, more importantly, at the same time, you pursue us. We open your word and read it, O Lord, and yet your word reads us and shows us who we really are and what we really need in the light of your majestic holiness. Thank you for your grace. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. 
there are many days or many reasons why students look forward to the day that they will complete their education. No more tests. No more exams. No more having to cram information into your head the night before the big final. No more sweating to see if you received the grade that you desired to receive. How many of us are thankful that we no longer have to take tests anymore? And yet, as Christians, the people of God, we must understand that there are still tests for us. In our lives, we will encounter tests. We're not exempt from them. We will never graduate on from them. In this life, we will encounter tests. Tests are part and parcel of the Christian life. If you are a Christian, you will be tested, and these tests come through trials. This means that they are not easy. They will be difficult, hard, taxing, tiring, stretching, and sometimes even painful. Yet they are necessary for your life. They are important, even vital for you. We must recognize our need for tests. And the only way that we are going to be able to start welcoming tests instead of running away from tests is to first know that these tests are from the hand of God. Our God is a God who tests. Listen carefully, because I'm not saying that God tempts. James 1, 13-14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. We know that God does not tempt anyone, but He does bring testing into our lives. This is why we can welcome testing because it first means that God is in control of the test. When we encounter trials, it is a comfort to our hearts to know that God is orchestrating it all. This might trouble some people. In their lives, as they look at the hardships that they have gone through, they might begin to ask those questions. Did God cause me to get laid off? Did God work to bring this destruction to my house or property through fire or storm? Did God bring cancer into my life? Is God the one who is not bringing pregnancy or the joy of birth into our lives? Was God in control when my child died? These and many others are difficult questions. But what if the answer to those questions was no? What if God wasn't in control? What if God wasn't sovereign? What if he wasn't orchestrating all things? Would that bring comfort to our lives? Would it bring any source of hope or peace 
Don't worry. God didn't know it was going to happen. He was just as surprised as you were by these turn of events. They're there. It will be okay. Those are not words of comfort. Those are words of chaos. If God is not in control, if things just happen in this world apart from Him, if He is repeatedly shocked off His throne, then there is no certainty that it will ever be okay. Because how could we ever be certain that He can control the outcome if He wasn't in control at the beginning? Whatever my God ordains is right. Isaiah 45, verse 7, the Lord says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Praise Him that He is in control because if He was not in control, everything in our world, everything in our lives would come undone and unravel. It is comforting not only that God is in control, but also that His control and sovereignty has a purpose. God does not test for no reason. God's tests have objectives and goals. They are meant to do something in our lives. In fact, this is what the gospel primer says. It says this, God always looks upon me and treats me with gracious favor, always working all things together for my ultimate and eternal good. God's grace abounds to me even through trials. Because I am a justified one, he subjugates every trial and forces it to do good unto me. Is this the view that we have of how God uses tests in our lives? That he is is making them submit to his will and he's forcing all of these testings and all of these trials to do good unto us. They come to us through the loving hand of our Father who cares for us and desires our growth so that we can conform more and more with each passing day to be more and more like His Son, Jesus Christ. God's testing in your life is evidence of His grace to you. Do you see that those trials that you have to go through and that you have to endure, that is God's grace to you as a loving father. He gives to his children. How do we respond then? Listen to God's word. A few verses from 1 Peter and then from James. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith might be found true. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Count in all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Do you hear the reaction? Do you hear the response to trials? Joy! 
rejoice. Why? Because they are doing a work in you that could be done no other way. God tests through adversity for the good and for the benefit of his people. And so we enter into the wilderness with the Israelites in the book of Exodus, a time of testing. The Israelites are about to go through the school of the wilderness where they will encounter test after test after test. Will they pass? Will they fail? What will they learn? Dear brother and sister, we must realize that we too are in the wilderness of testing. We must learn from how God tests them and how they respond so that we might grow, so that we might learn, so that we might understand. And so our devotion, obedience, and following of the Lord might be more faithful. We are not home yet. We've been freed from our bondage. We've been delivered. We've been saved. But we are always growing, maturing, being sanctified as we look forward to our future and eternal home. When the Lord tests he does so in order for us to learn who we are. But as we will see in these tests in the wilderness, the Lord also uses the tests to reveal who He is. We will see this in the testing of the Israelites. They will learn about who they are, what they need. They will learn how they are supposed to respond to God and live before God, but God is also gracious in showing His people who He is. And their knowledge and understanding of who He is must be, base, must be the basis for their response. God tests you so that you will see Him more clearly. God tests you so that your view of him expands more and more so that you see his greatness more and more. And with each of these tests comes a question. After all, what would we expect if we were to go through tests? We would expect questions. In our verses this morning, the main question is this. Who is going to heal them? Who is going to heal them? It might be easy for us to answer that question. Well, God is, of course, and move on. Yet, let us not miss what's at the foundation of this question. If you need to know who is going to heal you, you need first to come to the realization that you need healing. There is no need for a healer if you are well. In fact, isn't this what Jesus says in the book of Mark, chapter 2, verse 17? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is where the Israelites were. They were oblivious to the fact that they needed healing. 
what is happening is that God is beginning to press into the hearts of the Israelites. Israelites, you once were in the bondage and complete misery of Egypt, and I have delivered you from those who once enslaved you. That was all very physical and external, but now they would learn that it wasn't merely the externals that were the problem, it was also the internal problem of the heart. They were sick because they were sinners. They needed to recognize their sin and their sickness and see that they could not heal themselves. They could not remove the sickness. They truly needed a healer. And so do you. And so do I. Do you recognize your need or are you oblivious to it? Are you pretending that you are well? Are you too busy blaming all of the external problems in your life without seeing the real sickness lies in your own heart so that you would see that you actually need a healer? And may you find that the only one who can or could ever heal you is the Lord himself. This is the revelation of God in these verses. I am the Lord, your healer. And as we examine the text, we'll see how the Lord heals his people and why the Lord heals his people. So number one there in your bulletins, if you want to follow along this morning, number one, the Lord heals his people just as he healed the water. The Lord heals his people just as he healed the water. So this is the how. We know the Lord is the healer. How does the Lord heal? That's what we're seeking to understand. When I was growing up, it was not uncommon for my mother to purchase grape juice and put that in the fridge. And one particular day is etched in my memory. I came in from outside. I went to the fridge. I was thirsty. There was the bottle of grape juice I took that grape juice from the fridge. I poured myself a nice cold glass of grape juice. I lifted it up to my lips, and I began to chug that glass of grape juice. And I was ready for the sweetness of that grape juice to flood into my mouth. But it only took a moment for me to realize, as I began to drink, that something was wrong. The sweetness that I was prepared for did not come. In fact, this wasn't sweet. This was sour and bitter and downright awful. You see, I hadn't poured myself a glass of grape juice. I had poured myself a glass of prune juice. We were at the time taking care of my grandfather who had hip replacement and my mother had purchased him a bottle of prune juice and put it in the fridge. And as quick as it went into my mouth, it came out of my mouth into the sink. And obviously that moment in time is inscribed upon my mind because 
I still shudder at that taste that I found in my mouth. It was distinctly disturbing. The people of Israel ran into a problem on their wilderness journey when they came to the place of bitter water. How did they get there? How did they get to this place that's called Marah where they encountered this bitter water? Well, let's look here at the text. So Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. We should read this how it is written. Moses had to lead the people in such a way that he had to make them pack up and move out from the Red Sea. It's almost as if they were content. Here we are by the Red Sea. Let's just hang out here. We're good. We're all right. We can live here for a while. And Moses said, no, we cannot stay here. We have to move out. And so they move out into the wilderness of Shur. They had no choice. And we cannot doubt that Moses made them go into the wilderness because this is where God wanted them to go. And so they journey three days into the wilderness. And let us understand what the wilderness is like. It's a desert. There's nothing there. It's a dry and barren wasteland. They found no water. Three days and each day, no water. No water. And again, no water. But then they came to Mara. And what did they find? Water, finally. Three days, no water. Here we come to this place, Mara, and what do we find? Water. We're saved, right? Not so fast. The water at Mara was undrinkable because it was bitter. In fact, the whole location there is named Mara because Mara means bitter. So this place forever became known as bitter because of the undrinkable water that they found at this location. Think of the Israelites as they were going through this. No water, no water, no water, and then water you can't drink. What are we talking about here? We're talking about water, that which is absolutely necessary for life. If you don't get water, if they didn't get water, and they didn't get it soon, their very lives were threatened. It's not like their Wi-Fi was out. It's not like they had lost power in their house for an hour or two. It's not like the closest Starbucks was closed down. It's not like their cell phone had run out of battery. It's not like they were stuck behind someone who's driving 10 miles an hour below the speed limit. They didn't have any water to drink to keep them alive. And so what did they do? They grumbled against Moses. They murmur. They complain. They gripe and they moan, asking Moses, what shall we drink? How are we supposed to drink this stuff? We found no water day after day after day, and now we've come to water. We can't drink. What are we supposed to do? What are you going to do about it, Moses? Give us something to drink. We demand that you must obey us. Do you remember what Moses had been telling Pharaoh before the Israelites were let out of Egypt? 
He'd said this three times, in fact. Please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. We will go three days into the wilderness and then we will worship. But what happened? Three days' journey into the wilderness and what happens next? They grumble. They don't worship. They're not giving praise to God. They're instead complaining to God. And think of all that just had happened. Think of where they had come from. They were just on the shore of the Red Sea singing praise to God, praising Him for all that He had done. They just walked through the Red Sea on dry land with a water of wall to the left and the right of them. They came out safely on the other side. Oh, how fickle and quickly changing the human heart can be. They were supposed to continue expressing gratitude to God through worship for who He is and what He had done. The horse and the rider He had thrown into the sea, the Lord has triumphed gloriously, hasn't He? But now they have this grumbling and complaining spirit which stands in complete opposition to worship. These cannot be reconciled. You can't make these two things go together. You cannot come here and think that there's any way you will worship the Lord in spirit and in truth if you're harboring grumbling, complaining, murmuring in your spirit. You can pretend to worship God. You can look like you're worshiping God. But you are not. And maybe this morning you're trying to justify, justify your grumbling. I have the right to complain. This isn't what I signed up for. This isn't what I want. You don't know what's been done to me. Let me tell you all of the reasons why my grumbling is justified. What about the grumbling that goes like this? Man, I don't like all those grumblers. All y'all are grumblers and you really get on my nerves. Not even the Israelites, who had gone multiple days without water, had a right to complain. What are you complaining about? What are you grumbling about, murmuring about? Does it even rise to the level of survival? The Apostle Paul knows grumbling could be a problem in the church. That's why he says this, Philippians 2, 14-15. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in this world. The testimony of Jesus Christ is at stake. Don't grumble, don't dispute, don't complain. Why? Why is it so dangerous? The Israelites' grumbling wasn't just against the circumstances. It wasn't just against Moses. 
Their grumbling was, in fact, rebellion against the Lord himself. They are saying, God, we are voting a vote of no confidence in you. This is why the grumbler can't show gratitude, why they can't worship, because if you are grumbling, you are defying the living God. If you are complaining, do you need to repent of your grumbling and murmuring today? Maybe even you're complaining about all the complainers. Let us not be so naive to think we can truly worship our Lord and give Him thanks while we grumble at the same time. When the Israelites grumble against Moses, what does he do? He does what he should do. He cries out to the Lord. The Lord is the one who can help in this situation. The Lord is the one who can provide. Crying out, Moses prays to the Lord, and the Lord listens to Moses' prayer, and he answers. He comes to the rescue. And what does the Lord do? Look at the description here. Verse 25, he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log. The idea here is that the Lord instructed Moses. He didn't just merely show Moses. He told Moses what to do, and Moses obeyed the instruction of the Lord. So the Lord instructed Moses and gave him instruction concerning a log, or even better translated, a tree. And so Moses, take this tree, throw it in the water, into this poisonous and bitter water. And what happened when Moses threw the tree into the bitter water? A miracle. Something supernatural. Something for which there is no natural explanation that we could find even if we tried. The tree healed the bitter water and made it sweet. The water was changed. It was transformed by the almighty infinite power of God. This is what the Israelites should have known. It's what we should know. Yahweh has the power over the forces of water. They had seen Yahweh change the Nile water into blood. They had seen the Lord part the waters of the Red Sea. Of course the Lord can change bitter water into sweet water. Jesus Christ, in fact, changes water into wine in his earthly ministry. The tree took away the bitterness and healed in order to make the water sweet. God is gracious to his people in providing sweet water for them. Why did God do it this way? Why this picture lesson? It shows us how the Lord heals his people. The bitter water provided a reflection to the bitterness that resided in the hearts of the people. The bitterness was to remind them of their miserable state of sin. It was to remind them of the constant and continual disappointment the bitterness of sin brings into one's life. And this is the invitation for us this morning. Come to the waters. Come to the bitter waters. Look. See your reflection. You're looking in a mirror. 
what do you see? A bitter, hard, resentful, angry, sinful heart? Do you feel as if your life is one big disappointment after another? Do you feel like when we read in the book of Ruth, this woman named Naomi, which means pleasant, and she says, because of all that's gone on in her life, don't call me Naomi anymore. Don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter, because the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. Do we ever feel like that in our lives? Do we ever know even the bitterness of our own sin? The Israelites, they knew this bitterness, they knew this misery, and they were unable to amuse themselves or dull the pain or escape the desperation. So many in our world today turn to amusement, turn to painkillers, turn to something, anything that will make them forget, to take away the suffering that they are experiencing. The problem with bitterness is that it never just stays bitter. It progresses. The New Testament often associates bitterness with anger. Ephesians 4.31 says this, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. You see the progression there? Let all bitterness, where does bitterness take place? In the heart. And then what happens? And wrath, and anger, and clamor, and slander, and all malice. It begins to express itself in a myriad of ways. Bitterness does not lead to what is good. It can affect everything in your life. How in the world is this bitterness going to be removed? How is this bitterness that is associated with sin and misery and disappointment in your life ever going to be resolved and fixed? Only through Jesus Christ. God provides Jesus as the one who is going to reverse the curse. Christ is the one who transforms the bitter water into sweet water. Jesus is the one who turns certain death into eternal life. What do we see in this tree that's been thrown into the water? We see the shadow of the cross. It is here where Christ took upon himself our sin, our misery, the bitterness that we knew, and fell underneath the judgment and wrath of God. It is here where the Lord saves his people. It is here at the foot of the cross where the greatest healing happens because it is a healing, a restoring of the soul. It is through the sacrifice of the cross and through our faith in Jesus, the one who suffered on the cross, where we are healed, purified, and transformed. Here, the tree thrown into the water is a tree that brings life. The cross of Christ, where he hung upon that tree, is another tree, and now that tree gives us life. And so it also gives us hope for another tree, even in the future, a tree that's in the new Jerusalem. A tree that's planted by the river of living water. A tree that's also called the tree of life. And what do we know about it? The leaves of this tree are for what? For the healing of the nations. Yes, 
the Lord heals his people, and he demonstrates how he heals us through healing the water. Number two, the Lord heals his people so they obey him by faith. The Lord heals his people so they obey him by faith. We just talked about the how. How does the Lord heal? And now we're talking about the why. Why does the Lord heal? So that we will obey him by faith. The problem with the Israelites at Mara was that they lacked faith. They believed more in what their eyes could see than in the God who they were supposed to worship. They live by sight, not by faith. What is faith? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is not crossing your fingers and wishing upon a star. It's not even believing that everything will turn out all right. It's not a trust where you have to fall blindly backwards. It's not a leaping into the dark. Faith is believing God. They crumbled and they complained because they thought God was insufficient. The reason for their testing was for the establishment of their faith. No testing, no faith. So it was there, after the healing of the water, the Lord made a statute and a rule. Notice again, this is the Lord's testing. You see that there in Verse 25 at the end, there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them. What is to flow out of the healing that they were to experience? It was obedience. So with the growth of their faith would come greater and greater obedience. Gratitude to God is expressed through two avenues. One avenue is through worship, so we give gratitude to God through our worship, we also give gratitude to God through our obedience. How do you show gratitude to God? You do what pleases Him. If you are living a life, making choices and decisions, not pleasing to God, you cannot say that you are living in grateful praise to Him. And let's make sure that we get the order of this event correct. It is not obey so that you are healed. It is you are healed and that healing, that purification, that transformation, that salvation enables you and empowers you to obey. God's grace given to us is the motivating factor in our obedience. And when the Lord speaks here in verse 26, he speaks in a conditional manner. If you listen diligently to my voice... If you do what is right in my eyes, if you give ear to my commandments and keep my statutes, nor, notice the Lord is calling them and calling us to obey him. We haven't even got to the Ten Commandments yet, have we, in the book of Exodus? Yet, here is this idea already that the people are to hear and listen what Yahweh says. And whatever he says, they are to do it. Are we those who are listening diligently to the word of God? Are we seeking to know what the Bible says so that we can do right in God's eyes? Is our heart truly filled with thankfulness to our God? Then we will obey Him. 
we will have ears to hear. And our lives will conform to what we hear from the Word of God. And look at the promise then that he says, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians. I believe those diseases are referring to the plagues that Egypt experienced. Through their obedience, they will not experience these judgments. And if they have truly been healed, they will hear the warning and they will obey. And what is the basis for all of this? What does it say there in verse 26? For I am the Lord, your healer. With their healing comes admonishment to submit themselves to God's word and be taught by him. And then out of their great want for water comes great plenty. The Lord provides for them by bringing them to Elim, verse 27. There there are 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees. I think those numbers are expressing fullness. They have all that they need now, all the water that they could want, 12 springs of water. And in fact, now they're encamping by the water, and Elim is foreshadowing what is to come when they reach the promised land. They are going to a place that's flowing with milk and honey. That's what they're looking forward to. And Elim is this foreshadowing of that day. Look how the Lord provides. Look at how he takes care of his people. Through this text and through the testing, the Lord has revealed himself to be his people's healer. No one else can heal them. Only his healing is true and lasting. But it makes us ask one more question. Who is going to heal them? And if we put it more personally, who is going to heal us? How does the Bible answer that question? It's answered in the life and ministry of Christ. Why did Jesus do what he did? Why did he act the way that he acted? What was he telling us and revealing to us through his ministry as he walked on this earth? Let's take a small survey of some of, of, some of his actions. Jesus heals the sick. Jesus heals the leper. Jesus heals the paralytic. Jesus heals the blind. Jesus heals the deaf, deformed, demon-possessed, and Jesus heals the dead. All that Jesus is doing through his earthly ministry is screaming out to us, I am the Lord, your healer. I am the one that you need to heal your bitter, sin-filled hearts. There is no one else. There is no one else to turn to, only Jesus. He is the undeniable healer of your soul. And the greatness of his healing ministry is climaxed in his death. Listen, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, what? We are healed. That is the healing that we need. When Christ hung upon that 
cross? Do you know Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Have you put your faith and trust in him? Is he the healer of your sin-sick soul? He is inviting you to come to him today. He is calling upon you to believe in him. Turn from the bitterness of your sin and rest in the salvation that he provides alone. Why are you pursuing that which does not satisfy? Why are you seeking merely to dull the pain with those things around you that will never heal? Stop grumbling. Stop complaining. Do not persist with no faith, but have faith in God. He will heal you. Revelation chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. There is judgment that is coming upon the earth. The third angel blew his trumpet. And a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood. And many people died from the water because it had been made what? It had been made bitter. God's judgment is coming, and with it, the bitter water. But what do the people of God know? How is it that you do not have to fear that bitter water that's coming? Revelation seven seventeen. For the Lamb of God... The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to what? To springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the water that Jesus Christ calls us to, the rivers of living water. Come, drink, find satisfaction for your soul. Find everything that you need. Hear the invitation from Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend money, your money, for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me. And eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my, sh- my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know. A nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God. And the Holy One of Israel, for He has glorified you. That is, He has glorified His servant David, Jesus Christ. Our healer. 
come to the waters and drink. Father, pray that we would have heard your word today and ask for forgiveness. Forgive us for the times of our grumbling and complaining. Forgive us for the times of our lack of faith. Forgive us for the times when we don't show you the gratitude that is due you because we don't worship you the way that you deserve to be worshipped and because we do not do what you say. Let us grow in faith and so then also, Lord, grow in obedience to you. Father, and if there's someone here this morning who does not know Jesus Christ, I pray that today they would put their faith and trust in him, that they would know the healing of their soul that they need, the healing where their sin is removed, they are forgiven of their sin, where they are justified in your sight and given eternal life. Pray that they would confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is the only way, and believe in their hearts that you have raised him from the dead. And so the, know the certainty of salvation for their own souls. Father, today is the day of salvation. We ask that you would save those who do not know you today. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.